You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Art of Kindness, where we have compassionate conversations with artists from all areas of the entertainment industry who are using their voice to spread joy and make this big spinning planet in the sky a better place to be. I'm Robert Peter Paul, and I'm so glad you're here. Hello and welcome back, AOKers. I hope you've been enjoying the spring so far. I wish I could bask in the sunshine a little bit more, but I am back in rehearsal mode, full throttle. I feel so fortunate to be a part of a new musical called Spirit of the 60s at the Downtown Cabaret Theater in Connecticut. I love so many people involved in this show, which retells the decade of the 60s through incredible music we all know and love and lots of fancy projections. It's really wild to look back on the 60s and learn more about that time period because it is so relatable to what's going on now. Unfortunately, there are so many parallels. So just looking back on that is incredible. And I think this is going to be a really powerful show. Not to mention it's jam-packed with songs, including with a little help from my friends, which I cannot wait to sing with my friends on stage. Speaking of, I got by during a busy time with a little help from my friend Matt Feeney, who is a sound wizard and actually working on Spirit of the 60s as well. He so kindly put his magical touch on this episode. Thank you for being a star, Matt. You know who another star is? That's right, this episode's guest! Today's guest is BAFTA and Olivier Award-nominated screenwriter, playwright, lyricist, producer, and author, Tom McRae. Born in Northampton, Tom relocated to Los Angeles in 2017 to work as a writer and producer on the U.S. television show, The Librarians. On British television, he is the creator, writer, and producer of the Comedy Central sitcom Threesome, as well as contributing to many other TV shows, including Doctor Who. Tom is also behind the incredibly successful smash hit musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which he adapted into a screenplay alongside his friends Jonathan Berterell and Dan Gillespie Sells in 2021 for an Amazon Prime movie version. They even wrote a few new songs in the process. Tom is currently working on a variety of exciting secret projects for the stage, screen, and television, which I wish we could have talked about. He lives in Los Angeles with two cats and one husband. As usual, please hang out with us for a little bit after the interview to get your kindness tip of the week. You can also find us on social media at Art of Kindness Pod or at Rob Peter Paul. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love if you could find it in your heart to hit that subscribe button and maybe the five-star review button. What, what? Without further ado, please enjoy the terrific Tom McRae. Tom, hello. How are you? You're in LA, right? Yeah, you're in Studio City. Yeah, and you? Oh, nice. I'm in Connecticut, so it's a little bit colder here, but it's kind of a studio where I'm at because it's a tiny apartment. So look at that. Great. (laughs) Well, after loving the soundtrack so much for Everybody's Talking About Jamie, I finally watched the movie recently and we enjoyed it so much. And just in doing research for this, I know obviously we're not the only ones. And I've seen firsthand that you've seen you know, people whose lives this story has affected and they've come up to, they've come to the stage adaptation, you know, in drag. And it just seems like there's been so much love given to you guys after you've put out this beautiful love letter to Jamie. So I was wondering, and this is a question I always ask my guests, how are you at receiving compliments and love about your art when you get them? Because it's kind of, it can be a weird thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it's nice to get, I guess, positive feedback. Um... I think because I live in LA, I kind of assume everything everyone says is, um, uh, can I say bullshit? (laughs) Uh, So for good or for bad, I think, well, everyone's got an agenda. But if it's someone who, I suppose if either someone who just literally they come, I mean, I was stopped in the street yesterday or the day before by a couple who, who, God knows how they recognized me, but they went, "Um, are you everyone's talking about Jamie? I was like, everybody's, but nearly. And they just wanted (laughs) to tell me how much they loved it. 
And someone like that, I think, well, that must be true, right? Because they wouldn't have bothered to have crossed the street otherwise. It's not like I'm famous and they wanted a picture. So something like that, actually, I find really, really touching and, and I suppose quite special because when it's out there with its own life as it is now, you know, it kind of rolls on without us. Um, it's nice just to kind of know that people still enjoy it. And of course, getting, because it's a live show as well as a film, if you go and watch the show, if I go and watch the show and I see the audience up on their feet at the end, then that, that is a compliment to the show. So there were some things like that I, I, I really like. I, I find they kind of regenerate my, my interest and my faith in, in the show because it's quite old now. Um, but I don't take it too seriously when it's kind of things online or if it's, you know, if I'm going to a meeting with a producer, of course they love my show. They've probably never watched it. They've probably literally never heard of it before I walk through the door, but they'll tell you how great it is. So I, I don't fall for that too much. But in my kind of my real life, yeah, I think kindness is really important. I have a really small family. I mean, it's really just a yeah. few of us left now, but I have a very large family of um, friends of the family, kind of extended family. And particularly in LA where I turned up here not knowing anyone. Um, I have my LA family who are my friends here who, you know, have helped, particularly through COVID where it was so testing, people who I was able to help and people who helped me hugely. And I have very, very good friends here who I would think of as close as, as family because of the things, particularly over the last two years that we went through. I think COVID yeah. reminds us how important kindness is. It's really all we have in the end. And so, yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at receiving it and I, I'd like to think I'm good at giving it. It's nice to kind of be part of that cycle and then you feel that you've, created bonds and you know love and and that's what kind of keeps you going definitely that's so wonderful that you're good at receiving it and giving it and for the record i genuinely mean my compliment i wouldn't have had you on here if i wasn't a fan and didn't enjoy the story and think it had a lot to do with kindness and today's topic but before we really dive in under there i would love to know what's your definition of kindness i think the the, the great thing about kindness is it, it, it's such a small thing i mean it yeah. is just as simple as someone's walking down the street and you see that they drop their wallet and you just say oh excuse me that's yours you take the money I, and run no. yeah the, no i kind of <laughs> leave like a couple of dollars but uh but then i hope that one day if i was walking down the street and dropped my wallets which i have done someone would stop and tell me which they did do so there's a kind of i guess there's a simple social contract there um but it, it's also just thinking about other people and uh i mean i remember a, a, a friend of mine so I, I don't know, I haven't known that long and don't know that well, but um, I, I just, her dad died and, and, uh, and I'd, I'd read it in the news because her dad was, was a well-known person. Mm. And, I, and I sent this long message to her because my, my mum had died not that long ago and, and she was a Brit in LA and I knew she was going to have to fly back to the UK. And I remember doing that flight when I was in LA and my, I got the call out of the blue that my mum had died and I had to go back and how awful it was. And I wrote this very long message saying, you know, I know exactly how you're feeling and, and I just want you to know that I understand. And I thought, I don't know that well. Is, it, is this just kind of presumptuous to, to write something like this? And actually, is it just me kind of, I don't know, trying to be part of her story when she's got enough to deal with? And I wasn't sure whether to send it or not. And in the end, I did press send. I didn't hear anything for a long time. And I thought, oh, was it too much? And then a couple of months later, I got another long message in return just saying that was exactly what I needed to read at the time when it arrived. It's almost like you knew because I did know how she, what she was going through and, and she was on her own. and, and and, and it, uh, this message popped and she said it meant so much. And I felt really relieved because it's that thing of, you know, kindness sometimes can be, you know, is a way of controlling people. If you do nice things for someone, then you, then you yeah. are allowed to ask for nice things back. And, you know, parents classically control their children by doing their laundry and then demanding that they wear the clothes that they want them to wear. You know, it's, it's, it's an easy thing to do. So I think you have to be kind of conscious as well that you're, you know, if you place someone in your debt, then that can be a selfish act. But mm. it, it, it's just, it's just all these little things. And, and I suppose you can, you know, on a huge scale, something like something with incredible bravery behind it, like, I don't know, I'm just thinking the family that sheltered Anne Frank, you know, that was a really, really dangerous act of kindness. And I suppose in our normal lives, we don't, if we're lucky enough to not live in a war, we don't have to deal with a lot of bravery being associated with kindness. I hope if, if that day came that, that me and, and the people that I love would be the people who would, you know, shelter a family. But it's really just a day-to-day -day sort of philosophy that, um, you know, if people are, you just smile at someone and say, how are you doing? And chat to people. And, and if, if I'm talking to someone, I think, oh, I know a way I could help you. Then I'll always try and do it. Uh, and, but I don't, I'm not because I'm so great and amazing. I just think that's what everyone yeah. should do. Anyone raised in a kind of loving family like I was, you're told to say please and thank you. And it's, it's really just an extension of that. So it's, it's, it's this small act that I think can change the universe. That's why it's such a special thing. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. I think people, when they hear kindness or these buzzwords, especially now in today's society, this Instagrammable picture perfect wellness influencer situation we've got going on in our news feeds, 
people think you need to do something major, but it really is just those small acts that you learn when you're a child. And I love that you brought up the difference between being kind and being nice. We talk about that a lot on here because yeah. there's such a big difference in the fact that you could take a moment in that beautiful story you told and really think about your intention before you sent that text. I think that's really all it takes to, to realize if you're doing something to serve yourself or to others, because at the end of the day, kindness does give back to us, but that mm. shouldn't be the reason you're doing it. You know, I think it should come from love. Nice can be entirely fake, but yeah. kind is always real. I think that's, that's nice can be kind sometimes, but kind is always nice. I totally agree. And you mentioned you learned that growing up from your parents. And I'm so sorry about your mom to hear that you could identify with her on that. I loved reading about your parents. And I don't always know if everything's true that I find. <laughs> but I heard your mom was an art teacher and your yeah. dad was an artist, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and my, my mom, when she first qualified as a teacher, she taught in this very nice girls' school uh, in, I think it was in Hampshire, which is quite a posh part of the UK. And <laughs> she used to have a lovely time. And she was, um, she was, she was the kind of the young, pretty art teacher. But she'd come from a very poor working class background and she wanted to do something more than that. So she chose to give up teaching at this lovely school with this very easy life. And she went to teach in a very, um, not really inner city because it was a small town, but a school that had quite a lot of issues. And she became the first female head of a department. She kind of built this art department up and was very involved with the school in, in, as, a, as a total thing, with the kids and their lives. And it was quite a difficult job that she took on but she wanted to do that and actually have a, a tougher life for herself but to feel that she was doing something mm. worthwhile so I mean I live solely to serve myself I just write what I want to write <laughs> so I haven't exactly taken that on board but but it was a lesson learned about not just doing the thing that suits you um so you know and, and I think there's there's a kind of a kindness in that is to be aware of if you just opt out and live in your your nice fancy house then you don't do anything good to anyone around you and particularly in the UK where we have like the NHS so everyone gets free health care and there's a sense you know, particularly it's very easy to roll out the vaccines and everyone has home testing kits because we've always had this institution since the end of the war which is about mm -hmm. everyone chipping in to help everyone you can have private health care if you want but if you can't afford to pay a penny towards it you still get you know cancer treatment and anything that you need and so there's a, there's, a, there's a stronger sense of the kind of social contract there than there is here in the states where I live now mm -hmm. uh, and I think kind of growing up with that I've, I've always been aware of you know, like you pay your taxes and you make sure that everyone is looked after. And so people who I'll never meet, you know, I'm not saying, well, I'm not paying my taxes to send your children to school or, you know, that's not the point. You, you do it to be part of a society which cares. And so it's kind of, it's an act of kindness, I think, to just play your part and not just to look for any way you can to chip away at your tax bill uh, and, and to kind of feel that you're, you're part of something bigger and which will in the end reward you because it's nice to live in a nice place, but equally you can, you, I think it's worth doing just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's what life is about, I think, it's about forming that community and supporting each other and lifting each other up. But there is something inherently that comes with, I think, being an artist and a creative person that is selfish. And I don't think people really talk about that a lot because that word gets such a negative connotation. But if you're not sort of selfish in your art and don't treat it as your priority, First of all, you probably won't get it done. And second of all, it won't really be authentic to you and your story or the story you're trying to tell. You can't not tell. And mm. then when you put it out there, no one's going to want to make it because it's not authentic and it doesn't connect. So I think it's something people just don't talk about, that selfishness can be kind in a way when you're yeah. telling your truth and you're trying to contribute to society. Yeah, it, it's, it, you have to be single-minded to get stuff done. And that means at some point you've you've sacrificed something else. You know, you didn't go to a friend's birthday because you had a deadline or and, you know, and, and maybe you should ignore the deadline and go to the birthday. But sometimes what you're trying to do is worth more. I, I tell you it's a kind of story of, of, of unkindness. Um, before I was married, as with probably most people in the world, I was on dating apps and I, I used to be on Grindr back in the day when it was kind of really just for hookups. But I was always more romantic than that I'm trying to hope for something more and I think it was the only one that was like the gay dating app so um and I remember one night this guy got in touch with me and he looked fantastic and he was like oh let's meet up let's meet up and I said um, I, I'm not free tonight but how about tomorrow and the reason why I wasn't free that night and I didn't want to talk about it because it was a downer but um it was my, my nan had died my mum's mum who I was beyond close to and her mm -hmm. funeral was coming up and I was doing the order of service and it had to go to the printers that night and I was writing the text and making it all lovely to go. Out. And was, that was the print deadline. 
there's no way of not going of, of not doing this that night and i remember replying to the guy and saying i'm not free tonight but i'd love to see you tomorrow if you have dinner he's like no come on live in the moment live in the moment just come out tonight i was like i really can't there's something i have to do and then he kind of went in this whole like oh come on come on seize the day i was like okay and i said look okay since you asked this is what i'm doing i'm writing the order of service for my nan's funeral the print deadline is at 10 p.m i can't miss it no response not even a I'm so sorry. Just nothing. Just moved oh. on. And I literally that was when I deleted it. I thought, oh, can I swear on this podcast? I'm, I'm really holding. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Great. I just thought, oh, fuck off. It's so <sighs> it would have cost nothing for you to have gone. I'm horny, but I'm sorry for your loss. Just yeah. the blank. I was like, oh, you know, and, and just the, the kind of meanness that comes from being anonymous online. Um, I'd never write anything online that I wouldn't write it or say rather to someone in person. Like if I was to criticize something, I would be prepared to say the same thing, like, like with my face attached to the words. Yeah. And it's kind of way that people hide. And there's something very mean about that. And actually, maybe because so much of our life does filter through social media, to be kind, therefore, not just on social media, but in real life, becomes mm-hmm. even more important because it, it's, too, it's too seductive. People get sucked into this kind of trolling, negativity, very aggressive, horrible to people. I read comments online and think, you would never speak like that to each other if you were actually face to face. Not just like, oh, you might get punched, but just that human courtesy we have drilled into us. You couldn't talk to someone like that. But online, they, they act as if it's someone else. Whereas for me, Tom online, Tom in real life, it's all, it's all me. I don't, don't kind of distinguish. No, I feel the same way. I try and be very authentic online too. And it's hard when people are hiding behind these phones and then you meet people in person. And it's, I think it's harder than ever to be authentic because we're more connected than ever and yet so disconnected. You get in front of each other and you have that impulse to just look at your phone and it's, it's scary to be vulnerable and be kind in a lot of ways because you, you're afraid of being rejected or whatever it is. But I do find that that's the ugly side of selfishness that people like your grinder experience where they're so wrapped up in their own bullshit that they can't take a moment to actually realize this person's hurting and there's a reason why. It's not about them and you're not part of their frustration for the day. It's something you're going through. So I think that's, that's an important thing to bring up. I did just want to ask you because your parents, it sounds like a dream situation in a way if, if you want to be an artist growing up because your mom's an art teacher and, you know, teachers are superheroes. My fiance's a teacher now more than ever, even if you're kind of at a plush school, it's just so shit to be a teacher with the pandemic and everything going yeah. on. And then the other hand, your dad was an artist. So if you knew at an early age that you wanted to do something creative like writing or in the arts, did you feel immediately supported and like it would be okay or? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I think one of the reasons why I became a writer was because my dad is such a good artist. He's absolutely amazing. And I would never be as good as him. So maybe there's a sense that I kind of thought, oh, well, let's not compete. I'll just do something else. And my dad's actually quite dyslexic. So I guess I picked the thing where I really <laughs> was going to, at quite an early age, I could string a sentence together better than he could on the page. Uh, but my mum was, my mum wasn't as talented as my dad, but she was very good at getting things to happen. And my dad's really talented, but he's hopeless at making things happen. And I think I kind <laughs> of got his creativity with my mum's um, kind of almost business sense. Uh, and so that's why, because, you know, you can write the best script, story, song, whatever in the world. And if you don't sell it and get it made, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you could say, yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I've written a ton of things that didn't get made and every one of them was a learning experience and I enjoyed doing them all. But ultimately, I, you know, if the, if the script falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, then it, it, it's not relevant. So yeah. I wanted it to, you know, to get out there. And, and I kind of got that from my mum, I think. Yeah. Then it's with all my scripts, Tom. That's, let's be real. Yeah. Uh, but most, most, most things for most people don't get made. No, it's true. It's like, even with acting too, it's 2%, I think, of people in SAG are actually working actors and, and able to support themselves as actors. So it's just, these numbers are crazy and it comes with a lot of rejection and a lot of, you know, moments of questioning yourself. Do you have any advice for grappling with that initially? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you just touched on it. You must have yeah. faced a lot of rejection starting oh, out. Oh, huge amounts. I mean, my advice would be if you really can't deal with it, then do something else. It's because you're just going to be miserable the whole time. And yeah. there's a thing like when I was a kid, I had this dream that this would all happen. And I was absolutely convinced it would. And I never let the reality of how difficult it was get in the way of the fact that I just believed I would succeed. Uh, but a point came when I was starting to succeed and I was always trying. I think if you just have a kind of a dream of wouldn't it be nice to be a star or a singer, whatever it is, but you're not prepared. Well, not only prepared to put everything second to it, to go back to your point of selfishness before, 
is I put everything in my life secondary to the writing. Not so much now because I've, I've got more of a wind behind my sails and I can take time out to, you know, yesterday was Valentine's Day and I took the day off to spend time with my husband. You know, I can do stuff like that now. But a few years ago, I would have been like, no, 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 that's, it's a Monday. That means working. I was very regimented. And it has to be like something that it's not even you want to do it. It's that you can't not do it. And I've, you know, I've, I've, I've seen that with, you know, people tell stories about, oh, well, I auditioned to go to drama school, but I didn't get in. And I think, and you gave up because you got one no. God, you would have hated it if you got in because then you would have left and you would have gone to auditions and you'd be being told no 10 times a week. You have to be able to deal with so much rejection. Um, Well, not even, I suppose you never really deal with it, but you have to be prepared for the fact that you are going to get rejected and it's going to be horrible. I don't know if you deal with it other than just plowing through. But yeah. if, if you're someone who can't imagine doing anything else, then, then there's your answer. You know, you, you, you can't do anything else. But if you doubt, if you have too much of a safety net, then I think, yeah, probably you'll fall because it's, the competition's too tough. And you let that rejection, which is usually just radio silence, kind of hopefully fuel you and just move on to the next thing. And that's in Jamie too. He, he can't not follow his dreams. I think there's yeah. a line in, in that that was so beautifully put. And even thinking now, when you mention the business side from your mom and the creativity from your dad, it really shines through in your dialogue. It's all so creative, but it has that crisp kind of every word is useful and there's nothing in there extra aspect to it that I appreciate. Someone just throw that in there. Thank you very much. There's a line in You Don't Even Know It that says the clock on the wall is moving too slow. And I think we just touched on the rejection and the fact that if you can't not do it, don't even try because it's just it's too much work and you got to be hustling. Do you have any advice for writers and creators out there who feel like they're hustling so hard, but that clock is moving too slow and they just mm. think they're never going to break through? Well, a producer said to me once, whether you're a good writer or a bad writer, it takes about seven years to break through. And so the problem is that you could be a bad writer and it's not until you've passed the seventh year that you realize it's you. Uh, I don't know how true that is or not, but I guess a point comes where if really nothing is happening, then maybe it is you. I mean, I, I get sent scripts to read by like friends of friends who want to be writers. And I haven't read a really bad one for a long time, actually, that they've all, they've all had a lot or at least something about them that I thought was really interesting and good. Um, but I have read some really, really bad scripts. And when that said, I've, I've seen really bad scripts that have been made and someone's been paid for them and maybe been paid quite a lot. So, I mean, it, for acting, it's a difficult one because so many actors who work aren't necessarily the best ones. It's not really about if you're good and you just keep going, you'll eventually get what's due to you. It's so much to do with like looks and, and you know, to be honest, like who you slept with. You know, all of that still really mm-hmm. comes into play. Whereas with, with writers, it, it's unlikely that you got a job on a show because someone fancied you. It, you're much more likely to have got it because you were good. If you happen to be born into a kind of connected family, then that certainly helps. But you can make the connections yourself. I, I had nothing at all. I've, I've made everything happen from, from a you know, complete standing start. And other people I know had connections to the industry through their family. Um, and it was an easier way in. But I think you, if you are good as a writer you probably will in the end sell something and, and make it if you're good. Um, if you want to be a screenwriter, then you need to also understand what's popular. And that doesn't mean chasing the last hit because that rarely works, but that something in your heart understands what a lot of people want to watch because it's expensive to make a film. Even a cheap film costs a lot of money and, mm-hmm. and, and a TV show the same. So you're, you know, you're expecting to sell a load of tickets, something like Squid Game. You know, if you if you just pitched that to me cold, I would have thought this sounds weird. But you watch it and it's absolutely brilliant. There's a director who I won't attempt to pronounce his name, but who wrote and directed all of that and created it. He knew and he banged on for, I think, about a decade before he got it made. He knew it was good. He knew people wanted to see it. And there's another it's not to do with writing dialogue or character or structuring story or anything. There's a thing that if you're a populist writer, you need, which is to just kind of have a sense of what people want. So I've, I've never read The Da Vinci Code. And I know that people criticize Dan Brown for saying he's a terrible writer, but if he sold that many books and that many people wanted to read them, then he's, he's doing something right. You know, he, he, he knows what people want. If you're going to do very high art, then people will follow you. You know, you'll, you'll do your, your play that two people see, or you'll have a, 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 a critically celebrated exhibition. Um, that's a different thing. That's not, you're not trying to be a, a popular artist. You're just trying to be an artist. If you want to do, um, musical theater certainly and film and tv then you have to have a sense of what's popular and if you don't then i think mm-hmm. you, you, you'll struggle 
And sometimes it takes a little while for the popularity to catch up. I mean, if you look at the Queen's Gambit, which was what, 30 years this guy was plugging along, believing in his script and his idea. So it's wild. You just never know. But as your career was growing and your scripts were starting to get attention and, and you started working more, do you have any stories on acts of kindness you could share that sort of stand out in your journey? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest one and, and a debt which I still try to pay back all the time, hence reading lots of new writers scripts, was Russell T. Davis, who uh, created Queer as Folk in the UK, which was then turned into a show in the States. He show ran Doctor Who, it's about to show run it again. He wrote um, It's a Sin, which was a fantastic show, and more recently, a very English scandal, which is brilliant as well. And Russell is, is kind of the highest profile TV writer in the UK. And when I met him, when I was, I think, 19, he was the kind of the, 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 the hot shot on, on the rise uh, after Queer as Folk, before Doctor Who. And he did a book signing in London, and I wanted to be a writer. And I thought Queer as Folk, the British show, was absolutely incredible. And groundbreaking and cool and sexy and funny and I wanted to write like that which I mean I do I think my whole career has just been doing a pastiche of Russell style uh <laughs> but you know it's, it's done all right for me and he doesn't seem to mind so uh, I went to meet him and uh he, he was doing the signing and I just was like Look, I, I want to be a writer and he was kind of well I don't have anything to do in London tonight because he didn't live in London so we ended up going um he took me out for dinner this was like I, I hadn't eaten in a restaurant for a long time because I had no money and we went to have pizza and um, just talked about TV and films that we loved and, and got on really, really well. And he agreed to read what I was working on. And, and so he did. And he gave me proper script notes, you know, as in like, this is not good enough. Why did you do this? Or this is wonderful. I love it. But like really honest and, you know, proper, like I, I got an education from him. And then when he did Doctor Who, he brought me onto it um, when I was about 25 to write on the second season. And it was, you know, he was just incredibly kind with his time. Uh, and with his um, support for me. And, you know, he loves Jamie and he's, you know, he's, he's very, very proud, which, which is, you know, he talked before about compliments. I got a very long text from him after he watched the film, really breaking down why he loved it. And that was the only review I needed, like more than anything else, any award, anything, to get that from mm-hmm. Russell meant everything. And he was so kind and gave me so much. So I've, I've tried to, 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 to pass that on um, in everything that I do with uh, helping out like younger writers, directors, actors, anyone who I can help. I always think of, of what Russell did for me and, you know, try and introduce people or help them out as well. That's incredible. Sounds like such a special person. And, yeah, he is. He's amazing. And it takes a special person to carry that torch. And it, I think it goes back to that kindness is contagious theme, you know, of spreading it along. It's like when you see someone on the street and you smile and they smile back and they smile to the next person. It sounds so cheesy, but it's really important. So I, I love to hear those kind of stories. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. I really want to dive into Jamie because I know we don't have too much more time and I just need to ask you a few questions about it. I know everything started with you and your friends wanting to set out and make a musical, if I'm correct. That's it. I know that there was a documentary. What was it about this story that made you choose it? So Dan uh, Gillespie-Sells, who we wrote the show, uh, we were friends already and we would talk about working together. Dan's a fantastic composer and songwriter. Uh, and, And I wanted to write lyrics and write songs with him and 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 write the book of a musical but we didn't have that golden idea and then we were introduced to Jonathan Buttrell the director of Jamie not that he was that then there was no Jamie but he uh, he'd seen the documentary on tv and thought this would be a really good musical and had basically raised a commission to develop the idea through the crucible theater in Sheffield which is where we opened the show originally and why the show set in Sheffield as well and he met me and Dan really through a string of ridiculous coincidences and chatted to us and just thought these are the guys to do it uh, and gave us that break. And that was uh, 2013 that we started doing that. So, uh, and, and Johnny is one of my dearest friends now. And they were, in fact, they were here yesterday. Uh, <laughs> uh, Gate crashed my Valentine's Day so we could hang out by the pool. It was Dan's last day in LA yesterday. So they're oh. still, you know, the people that I, I probably spend as more time with them than anyone else apart from my husband. And uh, we're back in London for the BAFTAs in a month or so and doing all that stuff. So, yeah, so we're still it's amazing to have done all this and still be able to say they're my best friends. That's quite a rare thing. 
but it was kind of built out of our friendship and our love for each other really that's that's what's always held it together through the film through the stage show through the different versions of the stage show we're on in los angeles at the moment till february 20th um so that's you know they've all been out here so we can put it on again and we're still doing that same show although i tweaked it so it's got american jokes in it american friendly mm. jokes in it and took out some of the very british references that wouldn't translate so yeah we we just keep on kind of rolling along on the pleasure we get from doing stuff together. Yeah, I know you, you had to change the freak show instead of... Uh, Minga, uh, but for the stage show, I've put it back to Minga because I think, and I think I was right, although I was overruled for the film, that even though Americans don't know what Minga means, when you watch a bunch of kids shouting at a boy who you know they are the bullies of, Minga, Minga, you know <laughs> they're not saying, congratulations, Jamie, we support you. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very British insult for an, an ugly, unattractive girl. Uh, she's a mm. minga. And if you hit the, the jihad, minga, then it's quite offensive. It's, it's yeah. about how you say it. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, so, but, but minga's gone back into the American stage show. I think it's absolutely clear what it means. Mm. And if not, I did a glossary of terms, which you can QR code when you go in the theatre that gives you a kind of little dictionary uh, thesaurus of Jamie's Sheffieldisms. Oh, that's really cool. I think that's awesome because you're, you're learning too then. It's a learning process. If I can spread... Uh, understanding of the word minga across America, then I will feel that my job is done. You've done your job. Yeah, yeah. we'll have to get you an award for that. Do you feel like you were ever tempted to change anything else when you're going back and you're reading it and changing it for the American version? I mean, I know it's been like set and you've had the movie made, but in your head, yeah. were you thinking, oh, this would be... Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've done some other changes that I, things that I just liked. And I, uh, well, when we reopened in London, it was the heart of COVID, the middle of all the disasters. So the show was rewritten yeah. to have all the COVID references in and the kids were in masks and, and we, um, yeah, so there was a lot of COVID jokes. And oh, wow. as it's gone on, there are fewer and fewer, but they're still there. And for the American version, I took a few more out because, you know, we're hopefully we're moving through it. But yeah, there's still those tweaks. And it's something mm. I could imagine maybe I will revisit it every few years. I mean, uh, you know, some of the references will just date. And I suppose at some point we either have to go, well, Let's make it a show because we never, it's always just set now. But I suppose really it's set in 2018 because that's when we, um, or 2017, because that's when we opened 2018, we're shooting the film. Uh, so maybe it's, sort of re it's really set then. And maybe at some point we decide, let's just say it's 2017 and stick with that. Or maybe it's always now and I'll just keep changing it and rewriting it. Uh, but yeah, if, if, if you've seen the show in the UK and you've seen the show in the US, you will see there are changes which are not just to do with sorting the Americanisms out, I did actually rewrite two of the scenes because I, I, I when I watched it in London, I used to think, oh, this, the dialogue's too complicated. I want to simplify it. So I took the opportunity mm. to, um, to rewrite a couple of scenes. That's smart. That reminds me of Spelling Bee. I love that musical. And I, I love in the script, they have the whole glossary in the back of the different words you can change or they'll give you suggestions, you know, depending on the time period, add in something that's like this. So I, yeah, I always cool. think that's awesome when there's... Yeah, pieces of art that continue to grow with the time. I wish a lot of Broadway shows would add on different changes. And I think COVID was a nice time for people to revisit things. But that was also the time when your movie was supposed to come out. Yeah. And for me, and I know that happened to, to so many different production companies. And obviously, there are more important things going on personally with, with everybody. But on a creative level, it must have been so frustrating to have the movie postponed. It was. It was. Yeah, I mean... People were losing more, but it was still it was it was it was quite hard, yeah, because we'd put everything into it. And but you know, everyone's lost something, right? So yeah. we, we get out and we keep on going, and I'm not dwelling on the past. But yes, it was very difficult at the time. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's still such an amazing movie, and and it's out now, and everybody should go watch. And if you haven't seen it, I I heard that when you originally wrote the musical version, and I'm sure as a screenwriter, you kind of already had this this hat on, but you wanted to keep the pace up, almost like a film, and kind of stray a bit from the musical formatting as we know it. And in this sense, I guess, since you're coming from a screenwriting world, was it just so easy for you to adapt it when you, when you turned into a movie? Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, everything has its challenges and, yeah. and being close to the material has some advantages, but, you know, equally you can be maybe a bit blind to things. We you know we had a great team who would give notes and point things out. Um, but it was a chance to kind of go back into a form that I really knew because I've still only written that one piece of theatre. And uh, it was, you know, that was a big learning curve, whereas film I'm much more kind of secure in how to structure a scene and do cuts and things, which is all very different on the stage, as in cutting from a scene to a scene. Transitions on stage are really complicated. A transition on screen is, there, done. 
Um, and yeah, but it, it's equally kind of like, well, I mean, I could chuck out all of it because it was my stage play. I could have rewritten every single word, every single scene. But you think, well, that's, you know, you want to keep some things or maybe even a lot of things because not just the fact that by the time we made the film, we, about a million people had seen the live show. So that's quite a big group of people who maybe would want to not see the show they love pulled apart too much. But also, you know, mm-hmm. it works. So, so you kind of, you're trying to work out what to keep and what not to keep what was tricky um, because in the end it was only really our decision. So we didn't have anyone else to kind of tell us, do you've got to change all this or, or say, you can't touch it. It's too precious. We were the ones, we were the vandals and we were the custodians at the same time. Um, so that was, you know, tricky, but Dan and Johnny and I, we always, you know, we come together and, and we figure it out and that's what we did with this. Mm. I feel like that can be tricky though, especially when you're friends and you love each other and, and maybe not, it depends on the, the connection and the vibe, but how do you navigate those harder conversations where you really want to keep something in and everybody else is saying, we're cutting it. I'm sorry. It, it can't. Well, if it really came down to it, we'd essentially take a vote and the majority would win and we'd accept that. But I don't know if we've ever, we, I mean, we've sort of said that that's how we would break a tie, but actually I think we've always just one has talked the other two round or, you know, th- there's, there's nothing that I, I regret. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, it's no, we, we just, we're just very honest with each other. So actually, there's a kind of thing from being friends where you can leave your ego behind and just talk. And we know we're not going to upset each other. Uh, so it, it's, it's probably, probably easier doing it with your friends than with people you just saw as colleagues, if you have the kind of genuinely open friendship that we do. Mm. Yeah, I guess it, it just kind of happens naturally then. And I feel like when you're working on a story where I think kindness kind of beats at the heart, because for me, when you put your authentic self out there, that's under that kindness umbrella. and even though that can be hard, I walked away watching after watching it thinking, embrace the discomfort, embrace the discomfort. I mean, that was the, the single, those three words just kept going off in my head. And I think that comes along with trying to follow a dream. And you guys captured that so beautifully. And it's such a wonderful role model for people out there. So I guess when you're looking at Jamie's journey now, is there something in particular that just inspires you on a personal level? Well, Jamie has to learn how to be kind. And that's something that's it's probably quite unusual in the structure of the story that Jamie, we don't just hold it all till the big reveal at the prom. He, he does the drag show kind of in the, the middle point, which in the stage shows just before the interval. And he does, he really nails it. And that confidence leads to him becoming basically the antagonist of the second half of the story. He's the villain because it goes to his head and he takes Mimi me to school and is mean to the bully who maybe deserves it, but he, he does go quite far. And he starts to become mean to his friends and in the end has to learn that being true to yourself is not the same thing as being the center of attention. Um, And that a drag queen on the stage, yes, is there to kind of throw shade and be amazing and be what everyone is looking at. But when it's a prom, of course, we can have a, a bit of that, but actually you're there to be part of a shared experience, not to turn it into the Jamie show. So that's why at the end he turns up wearing the dress and the look that he does and goes as himself. Um, because the kind of the world he's coming from, or rather the world of Hugo, uh, the older mentor, is that, you know, he, Hugo was a warrior in the 80s when no one was kind to the gays and AIDS was everywhere and the police were raiding clubs and they fought and they fought for what they had. And he kind of puts that idea into Jamie's head that you've got to be a fighter. And yes, Jamie does have to, but not as much in the same way because it's a different world. And actually his peers are far more open-minded and accepting as we see at the end when they protest to let him into the prom which is a true story that really happened that really happened to jamie mm-hmm. campbell's friends and his community at his school which is such an inspiring part of the story of the true story and he gets to have the kind of love of that community because he leaves his ego behind and in the end he the, what, what he does with the bullies he takes him by the hand and in the moment where jamie is all powerful and dean is crushed jamie takes him and elevates him and takes him into the prom and does this very kind thing. Um, and that, that was really important to us was that it's not, and then I won and I'm, I'm better yeah. than you because it, 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 you know, particularly for performers, it, they can fall down that rabbit hole pretty quickly when they get fame and success. You know, it's a classic story and Jamie, yeah. it's only local notoriety, but it's still there. So the difference between well, his journey is he starts off being a sort of kind boy at the beginning. He becomes a nightmare in the middle and then works out how to be a kind boy but with the changes that he's, he's gone through by the end. And really that's, that tracks his journey is the kindness ometer. 
you can mm. see it starts here and dips and then ends up here and that's that's his whole arc and yeah. i find i find that really inspiring because you know we well i, I mean i'll tell you this quickly that the um you know I, i've you know i'm not you know i'm not spielberg but i'm the most successful i've ever been in my life and yeah. this is the kind of point where you start um i'm gonna go back to the taxes you start trying to find lawyers to get you to stop paying taxes and because it's all me i did it all on my own and suddenly <laughs> suddenly i'm not this kind of like liberal thinker anymore i just want to have nice things for myself because i did it all on my own and uh there's a point i think when you get successful where you have to check that attitude and it's very easy for me and for dan and johnny to do that because everything we have is built on our two-week run at the crucible of this show that no one had heard of and no one wanted to see originally and no one cared about and it became this phenomenon while we were there and i mean it's in sheffield it is huge it's like the beatles in sheffield jamie is is, is the Mickey Mouse to Sheffield's Disneyland. We are now like, we, we, we are kind of the, um, almost like the, 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 the what's it called? The, the mascot of the town, is, or the yeah. city rather, is Jamie. And wow. because in those two weeks, all these ordinary Sheffield people came to see the show that everyone was talking about and they celebrated it and made so much noise that London couldn't help but sit up and pay notice. And we got to go to London with the show and from that across the world, and we got the movie deal and everything else but because this working class community got behind us 100% and carried us on their shoulders and when we shot the film we went back to that same community and we had people coming to be extras who had been there in that first show or in the first two weeks of shows and wanted to come and tell us not in a kind of annoying kind of star fuckery way but just to say oh we love Jamie we love it because we all do so it's fine I'm really happy to talk mm. to people like that because it's like yeah me too we all love it we've all we've all got so much out of it and yeah. so we got to make a film with all, you know, these thousands of extras who were just Sheffield people who loved Jamie and wanted to be part of it and were so happy to be there. And because of that, everything else happened for us. And we wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for those people. So when I look out my window as I can do at my nice swimming pool, I know exactly why it's there <laughs> and why I'm here. It's because of the good people of Sheffield. So there's, we've never kind of collapsed into that. I did it all. Give me more cocaine. I don't want to pay my oh, taxes man. on that jet. I keep, I keep going about the taxes thing, but it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to support the society around you. And, uh, and yes, yeah, so yeah. we, we kind of, we're, we're continually humbled and grounded by how, how our success was born. Well, it's important. Nobody gets anywhere by themselves. And no, we're seeing know. now, I think more than ever with new works, especially if you look at the musical Come From Away. I mean, that's was also really rose up on a huge community of people and, and their exchange of love and, I just think that's such an amazing story. And I've, I've seen your swimming pool. I stalked your Instagram and it truly oh, is beautiful. So very much. you enjoy that. It's, it looks quite lovely. It, um, it is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that you had, you had Jamie save the cat in the end, not to get too screenwritery. Yeah. Um, but also when I look at, I mean, that's a screenwriting book for anybody that doesn't know. When I look at that book, the movie really didn't follow any sort of formula. And yet it still felt like a movie and it wasn't distracting. And so I, I really thought it was cool that you had that big reveal in the middle. And, you know, then we still had another even more wild reveal, which was Jamie's true self in the end. Well, I, I've I... never read any of those books. So that's probably why I didn't, I didn't, that. I didn't know I was supposed to do it. I have no training. I, I, I just make it up as I go along. So yeah, apologies to the cat people. I, I didn't know about it. It's a very big screenwriting book in the US that, you know, I think you just got to take what you like, leave the rest. And clearly something's working for you. So you just do you. Before we leave, if you have time, I have a surprise game. Oh, you're down to play. Absolutely. Okay. It's called the compliment game. Okay. And because you haven't gotten enough out of this already. And basically, <laughs> I reached out to someone in your life who is a lovely soul. I don't think they understood the assignment which is okay because i sent a paragraph very haphazardly to a, a dm on instagram so it's it's a compliment but it's like not exactly it's more it's more of a statement but i'm going to read you it and you just have to guess who said it everyone's beautiful in their own way it's the compliment game on me okay, okay. it's the compliment compliment, compliment game for someone born and raised in northampton who lives in la he really does know Sheffield people well, including what Henderson's relish is. Uh, is that Mel? Yeah, Melissa, Melissa Jacques. Melissa Jacks, yeah. That's, that, I, that's so funny because I, I, I tagged her in a picture at um, Bianca Del Rio's pool party I took. And the, yeah, and the, the caption that I put on was as if she was asking Bianca to pass the Henderson's relish. And it is the, it's the very famous 
thing from Sheffield that no one outside <laughs> Sheffield knows about. It's, it's like Worcester sauce, but it's vegan, actually, so it's good. Uh, mm. I I'm saying that I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. And yeah, it's like the icon of Sheffield is, uh, yeah, Henderson's Relish. How funny. Oh, that's so funny. Maybe I'll get, a sponsor, <laughs> get them to sponsor the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Melissa. And I know, you know, so many people love you, so it was easy to find people to reach out to. So there's a few DMs out there. You okay, know. we'll see what, what, what uh, crawls in. Glad I guessed mail first time. I'm, um, I'm, I'm pleased about that. Yeah, you nailed it. A lot of people don't. Some people need some hints, which yeah, can't really give because I don't really know anything about the people about, about in, Henderson's rally in my guests. Yeah, life. I really have valued our time together. And just to wrap things up, it would be wonderful if you could share any sort of tangible kindness or I guess wellness tip that you think listeners could take and incorporate into their day. Huh. Well, that's I, I think. My day is all self-defined by what I want to do because I don't have to go into work at any particular time. So actually having a really strict structure for me is really important because it means that I know that I finish at 5 p.m. and I'm not going to just sit up all night trying to type a page. I will put it down and wait till the next day. So I have my time with my friends and my family in the evening. Uh, and, and although I have the ability to just drift into staying up all night typing, I make myself not do that. And that's good advice if you have a self-employed kind of life like mine, but probably most people don't, even with, you know, working from home over COVID, you've still got some boss somewhere telling you, you've got to do this at this time. So I guess my advice would be, don't forget what it is you're doing it all for. Um, I was talking about this with my best friend yesterday, moving into a new flat with his girlfriend. Um, it's all stressful. And it is, you know, it's the whole thing. Um, they've been staying with us for a bit and they've, now they've, they've gotten to this place in West Hollywood and it's all things to sort out and the internet isn't working and then the, the bed isn't there and, you know it's all this stuff and I said just don't forget that there's never a point in your life where your to-do list is finished you you will die with three things on your to-do list that you hadn't done yet um mm. you, sometimes you just have to remember yes that thing didn't turn up this thing's all right but look at what we've got and why are we doing this because we want to have this life and just stop and enjoy it and I I, I, I think like if you if I said to you right you've got to go and write a list and plan every meal you're going to eat between now and the day that you die, you would just, your brain would explode. But if you mm -hmm. say you've just got to cook one meal at a time, do one shop a week, it will all get sorted out. And it's too easy. I think when you're worrying about, you've got to do your tax return and you've got to get the new car and you've got to get your, you know, there's a, there's a leak in the ceiling and it all is overwhelming, but you're doing those things so that you can have a home for your family and see your friends and have a life. So sometimes you just need to put all those jobs to one side and just enjoy what you've got and not let the means to the end overwhelm you and start to feel like it is the end. So that's it. So stop and smell the roses mm. is the simple version of that. But I think we all have a to-do list of things oh, yeah. to work I got through. <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, I got a whole book right here. That's it. And it's good to be organized, but sometimes you just got to put it down and just live your life because otherwise mm. what are you doing it for? Oh, that, that is so beautiful and important. I'm going to write it on my forehead. So I see that every time I look in the mirror, because what am I doing I mean, it for? Yeah, I'm planning a wedding right now, and that can be incredibly stressful, and there's so much to do, but just thinking about it. And you're planning your wedding? Through that lens, yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm mean, not a wedding planner, but... So when we got married, we capped our whole wedding on, at £6,000, which is probably about $8,000. Um, wow. Easy with two men, because we both owned the suits already, and we didn't have to have a wedding dress, which is obviously expensive. But mm. we'd, we'd been to, to a very, very expensive wedding, and I felt like I was watching the couple get lost in this kind of production number. It didn't seem to really be about anything other than look how much money we've spent. And, mm. and I thought, I don't want that. And we just had the press night for Jamie where I got to go out on stage and have a standing ovation from an audience of strangers and famous people. I was like, right, my, my ego is tops up to here anyway. <laughs> we can just make this a fun day out. I'm not doing princess for a day. Uh, nothing wrong if people want to do that. I know a lot of yeah. my female friends definitely wanted to be princess for a day, but I was like, I've, I've, I've been princess for a day enough times. My husband's an actor. He's had enough curtain calls. We could just mm. make this a day that everyone will enjoy. And we did it for as cheaply as we could and got everyone to contribute kind of time and ideas and people sang and danced and did stuff. And, and, and so we tried to, we put the time in rather than the money and that made it a really fun day. So it'd be my advice with people getting married is maybe not for every wedding, but, Try and spend as little money as you can and use much, as much imagination and 
um, you know, love as you can instead and, and not stress spend the whole day stressing because the doves didn't fly in the right direction. And the, <laughs> the, the, the peach cake was actually a, a, a oatmeal color, you know, you like, no one knows, no one yeah. knew what color it was going to be. No one cares. They're there for you. Remember that they're there for yeah. you. Oh, thank you. I need to write that down. I need to yeah. tell it to my family too. I have a big Italian family where everybody has, you know, uh, 300 people coming and you have to go to every table and it's like the same format every time, but we're very much. And pin the, the money that. on the wedding dress at the end, don't you? Italian weddings. Oh, do people do that? That's that in actual it's Italy. Yeah. That's, oh, probably. Uh, I know, I know from British Italians, that's what they do. Yeah. You come and pin 50 pound notes on the wedding dress at the end to help oh. pay for everything. So. Oh, well, like, I'm going to, maybe I'll keep a, that. Tradition, I'd, I'd start that one going. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you wear the biggest dress you possibly can. Yeah, I will. And I'll have everybody taped to it. I'll, I'll get a little collection thing, like when you're at mass and I'll just start shoving it in yeah, yeah. people's faces. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. And that's true with art too. You know, people get so caught up in, even if I have a self-tape, the finished product, what it's going to look like, how I send it in, making a movie, making a, a show, whatever it is. But if you just stop and enjoy the moment, you're going to get to the end in a much, yeah. I think, better headspace. Yeah, and, and don't worry that that, you know, that light didn't go on because everything else that was supposed to happen happened and the audience loved it. And yeah. pe- people will not spot mistakes if they're, if they're into the story, if they're following it. We, we had some, I mean, some absolute technical disaster corkers in the show uh, to, to the point where I think, oh my God, that whole scene's ruined. And I had have friends and I said, I'm so sorry, the whole thing went wrong. Like, what, what, what went wrong? They just didn't yeah. notice. And I said, like, how do you not see that? The curtain didn't fall. The projection was in the wrong place. There's literally something that happened. Oh, well, I didn't know it was supposed to look like. I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, guess that's, that's true. You don't. So that's it. Never, never underestimate how much other people don't know what something is supposed to look like. Yeah. So you, can, you can leave a lot of worry behind if you remember <laughs> that they don't know what it was supposed to be anyway. It's so true. And I think it's that negative human brain thing. You know, when I come out of a show and someone I love was there and I'm like, oh, you came on a bad day. This happened. They're like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. It was awesome. Yeah. So everybody out there, focus on the positive. You don't need to don't go the negative way. Well, thank you, Tom. I want to thank you so much for your time here today and for all thank the you. wonderful art and stories you're putting out into the world. And, right, and congratulations you on your upcoming wedding and good luck. Thank and you. I hope it's at the start of a, of a fabulous life together. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And now it's time for your kindness tip of the week. It honestly feels trite to call this a kindness tip, but I also feel like I should have addressed this on the podcast sooner. Right now, we all really need to do our part to support the people of Ukraine as they continue to endure the unthinkable. There are many wonderful organizations you can choose that specialize in various relief efforts. One organization that I love that is currently focusing on providing the children and families of Ukraine with immediate assistance is Save the Children. Please consider going to savethechildren.org and giving whatever you can. No donation is too small. I'm sending love to you all as we continue to live in extremely uncertain and complicated times. There's a lot of unknowns, but I do know that there's still also a lot of kindness out there. Stay in the light And until next time, remember, everything's going to be A-OK. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.